Well, I'd ask you this morning to take your Bibles, your electronic devices, the the Pew Bible, and join me in Matthew chapter 5. This morning we are starting a journey through the Sermon on the Mount. And I don't know who the wise man is who chose for me to cover 12 verses this morning. I'd like to find that guy, but unfortunately the only place I can find him is by looking in the mirror. I'm going to share with you this morning in this message, I feel like I'm taking a thimble and dipping it into the ocean. Actually, I could preach at least a dozen messages on these 12 verses, but I'm going to attempt to cover them all here this morning in the service. So just, you know, buckle up. We're going to be moving quickly uh, through the passage this morning. We're going to see the key to lasting happiness. Follow with me. Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, the disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. May God bless the reading of his word. The story is told of one of the men that John and Charles Wesley was discipling. And this man was becoming a pastor who would preach the word of God. And he was known for being a good preacher. But he refused to preach in the presence of the Wesleys. And he just didn't feel himself worthy. And so they were constantly encouraging him, we want to hear you preach, we want to hear you preach, we want to hear you preach. So finally he agreed he would preach in their presence. And he told them, the sermon that I am going to preach will be the greatest sermon that was ever preached. And so the Sunday came, the crowd was there, he got up, he began reading in Matthew chapter 5. And he read Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. And then he closed his Bible and sat down. And they said, aren't you going to preach for us this morning? And his answer was, how can I improve on the greatest sermon that was ever given? And truly, what we have here is one of the rare instances even in the Gospels, where we have a sermon that Jesus preached. Now, there are those who study this sermon, and they would believe that we only have a portion of it. In all likelihood, they say, 
the sermon by Jesus was probably two hours long. Now, I have enough material to preach for two hours this morning, uh, but I don't think you have enough endurance to stand two hours of my preaching this morning. So we are going to move through this quickly. The key to happiness. That word blessed can also mean happiness. It has a deeper meaning with happiness. But our world talks about happiness, doesn't it? I mean, back in 1988, there was a song that was number one on the top 100 chart. And it made a comeback during the COVID time. Uh, maybe you'll recognize this song. You can sing along, it's okay. Here's a little song I wrote. You might want to sing it note for note, don't worry. In every life we have some trouble When you worry you make it double Don't worry Be happy Don't worry, be happy now about there. I thought about asking Sean to sing that this morning, but I thought he'd probably quit on me if I asked him to sing that right before the message. This is the world's type of happiness. Just don't worry and be happy. That is not what Jesus is talking about in this passage this morning. Now as we approach the Sermon on the Mount, the first thing I want you to see that there are two audiences that are being addressed here. First of all, we have the audience of the disciples. Look at it, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and we, when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So he is addressing this. The first part of his audience is the disciples. And please note, in those days, when rabbis taught... They sat down, and those listening stood up. Sometimes I think that might be a good change for us, especially as I see some of you getting real comfortable in the, the, the pews. It would, uh, might keep you more in tune if you were standing and I was seated, but we'll leave it the way it is here. Uh, this one. But there is the audience of his disciples. The Greek term for disciple means a student or a learner. It is also a follower. And it is a follower who is completely committed to the teaching of the person they are following. The Pharisees prided themselves on being disciples of Moses. 
Jesus' disciples were actually called disciples long before they were ever called Christians. The word Christian doesn't come along until after Jesus has resurrected and has gone back to heaven. Now, Jesus told that if you were to be his disciple, you would have to give up everything to follow Jesus said that if you were to be his disciple, you had to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. We find over in John chapter 6, in verse 66, after Jesus has taught some difficult things, it says from this time forward, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. So a disciple is a follower of Jesus. And that is who he is talking to as part of his audience. He is also, though, talking to the crowd. It's like there are two concentric circles here. We have the disciples, and then we have those who are not yet his disciples, but are part of the crowd that has gathered him, that drove him to go up into the mountain to teach. And we know it's the crowd because verse 1 of chapter 5 says, seeing the crowds. But also if you go over to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7 in verses 28 and 29, we read this. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribe. So there are two different groups that are listening. Those who are committed to Jesus as his disciples and then the larger mass of the people that were listening to him teach. The second thing that I want you to see in this passage is the statement of blessing. The statement of blessing. Look at them. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. What we find here are eight Beatitudes that are worded in exactly the same way. Some would say, well, there's a ninth blessed that we see over in verse 11, but verse 11 is not in the same form as the other eight. And so most believe that verse 11 is actually expanding on what was said in verse 10. The Beatitudes come from the Latin meaning blessings. Jesus is pronouncing blessings. Now you'll notice there are three parts to each Beatitude. First, there is a pronouncement of blessing. Second, there is a reference to some basic virtue. And third, there is a description of Christ's coming kingdom. Each beatitude begins with the word blessed or happy. You could read in there, instead of blessed, you could say happy. But it is not talking about a surface happiness. It is a word that means a deep happiness that comes from within us, not that which is external on the outside. 
Now what is also interesting in the Beatitudes is we have six statements of blessing that are sandwiched by two promises. Look at verse 3, the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Present tense, it is something that they have right now. Then look at verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That statement of a fact, present tense, that when we are disciples of Jesus, when we are followers of his, we have the kingdom of heaven. In between, we have six promises of things for the future. All of them are in the future tense. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And that will be true. On each of those six beatitudes, it talks about something for the future. So how, how do we bring that together? Jesus was on earth proclaiming the kingdom. They rejected Jesus. They rejected his kingdom. But there is a kingdom that's still coming. There's a time when Jesus is going to return to earth and he will set up his kingdom. So you sort of see that there's this, it's already here in the fact that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you trust in him, you are a possessor of the kingdom. But the full arrival of that kingdom will not be until Jesus is back on earth. And then all of these things that are talked about will be true during the reign of Christ. So some would say then, does this have no bearing on us today? No, it's a description of how we as true followers of Christ should look and how we should behave. See, when you put your faith and trust in Christ, Holy Spirit comes to live in you. And the Holy Spirit produces fruit that will flow out of you. And these beatitudes, even the ones that have a future promise, should be true in the lives of each and every one of you. So the way to interpret uh, this sermon is the Beatitudes are for the disciples of Jesus, words of celebration. We can celebrate that these things are true. And they are words of invitation to the crowd. Jesus saying, come, follow me. And this blessing, this happiness, this deep happiness that my followers have, you can have too. If you will be one who follows after me. And so as I said, this is what all Christians are to be like. It's not just for super saints. This is something that should be true of each and every one of us. So let's look at the meaning of the Beatitudes. Let's, them, let's break them down. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Well, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Jesus is not talking about poverty in our world, physical poverty here. He's talking about poverty in spirit. There is no special virtue or specialty or nothing innately uh, spiritual about being physically poor. There are righteous poor people and there are unrighteous poor people. There is nothing inherently righteous about being rich or being unrighteous because you are rich in physical things. There are righteous rich people and there are unrighteous rich people. As we know from Jesus' own statement, it's very difficult for a rich person to follow after him. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a sewing needle than for rich people to come to know Christ. But sometimes we, brought, we paint with a broad spectrum and we say it's righteous to be poor and it's sinful to be rich. Neither of those statements are 100% true. The, the word in the Greek that is used here for the poverty means absolute and abject destitution. It's a person who has nothing at all. And to be poor in spirit recognizes that in God's sight, we are nothing. Let that sink in. To be poor in spirit means we have a proper viewpoint of ourselves, that we are nothing compared to him. Now, I know that's not a popular message in our world today, which is always asserting self-worth, self-worth, self-worth. And I know that there are some of you who struggle with self-worth, but you're off the charts in that, that struggle, and you need to be reminded that you're a child of the king. So that you are loved and God hasn't rejected you. But on the other end of that spectrum, when we come before God, we bring nothing with us. Nothing that would be of merit to him. And we are saved not because of who we are or what we've done. We are saved because of what Christ did for us. Now, look at this as it's stated throughout the scripture. Let's look at it in the lives of, in the, of David of the Old Testament. David would write, the sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Solomon prayed to God, O Lord my God, thou hast made thy servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. Job said, I heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see thee, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Isaiah, when he sees the vision of God, says, woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. We move into the New Testament. John the Baptist said, among you stands one of whom you do not know, even he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. The tax collector in the story of Jesus stands afar off and says, God be merciful me, to me, a sinner. 
we see the centurion that we looked at just last Sunday. What was his response? Jesus, I'm not worthy of you to come underneath the roof of my house. Peter, when he saw the power of Jesus, said to him, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And the apostle Paul, probably the greatest of the apostles, wrote, I know that nothing good dwells within me. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. Happy. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The only way we can enter that kingdom is by recognizing we are lost. And by putting our faith and trust in the one who can save us. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The word used for mourn is the strongest word for sorrow in the Greek language. It's a sense of bereavement because of a person's spiritual failures. It's the person who has gone through the deep waters, which we all hate to go through. The Arabs have a proverb that says, though, all sunshine makes a desert. Let that sink in for a little while, because that is true. A man who has never seen his failures before God has never really mourned. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Someone has written a short poem that says, I walked a mile with pleasure, she chatted all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, and there a word she said, but oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. There are things we can only learn through mourning, and blessed are those who mourn. Next, we see blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The meek person is a person who is not proud of himself and who does not demand anything for himself and is not constantly defending himself. He's a humble servant of God. In the Greek language, the meek person was not passive or easily pushed around. And you've probably heard this before as a definition of meekness. It was strength under control. F.F. F. Bruce has said, the men who suffer wrong without bitterness or desire for revenge. That's what it means to be meek. And they shall inherit. Do you recognize as followers with Jesus that one day when Jesus sets up his kingdom, you will reign with him? You know, and, and what we do in serving the Lord here now determines what our role will be in that future kingdom. So there is blessing in being meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. 
Righteousness is to have the right qualities in this life. It's doing right. It's rightness in our attitudes. It is judging all things by God's standard of holiness rather than man's standard of relativity. See, our world changes back and forth on what's right and wrong. Our world moves around based on feelings. Following God is based on the truth that never changes. His word is forever settled in heaven. Heaven and earth will pass away, but his words will not pass away. And we hunger for righteousness, doing that which is right, based on what God's word tells us. And the result of that is, we will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Christians must have a spirit of compassion toward those in misery and suffering. Yea, even those who oppose the gospel. They are to be objects of our mercy. We are to pray for our enemies. And even as was shared before you this morning, our brothers and sisters around the world who are persecuted, pray for those who persecute them, that they may come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The word for pure means simply to be clean. It's, it's used of clothes that you have that were dirty that you threw into your washing machine. And if your washing machine is working right, when you take them out, they're clean. The word for pure means to be unmixed. That's how we as Christians are to be pure. For we shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called the sons of God. The word that's used for being a peacemaker does not refer to someone who's just an easygoing person who wants peace at any price. It is not someone who says, I'll do anything to avoid trouble. He's not someone who always seeks to appease or compromise. But he seeks peace based on truth not based on emotions. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they be the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We're going to be persecuted as those who follow Jesus. Jesus asked if they killed him, why do we think we should be able to, ex to escape? persecution. And certainly with the early disciples, it was true that they did suffer persecution. James was beheaded. Philip was scourged, thrown into prison, then crucified. Matthew was slain with a sword. James the less was stoned to death. Matthias was stoned and then beheaded. Andrew was crucified and then left hanging on the cross for three days. Peter was crucified upside down because he didn't feel worthy to die in the same way that his Lord had. Jude was crucified. Bartholomew was beaten with clubs and then crucified. 
Thomas was speared to death. Simon the Zealot was crucified. John was exiled to an island named Patmos where he died as a prisoner. Blessed. Happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. You remember the story in Acts when the disciples are persecuted and they come out rejoicing because they were counted worthy to suffer for Jesus. There is the key to lasting happiness. Exhibiting the character that the Holy Spirit produces within us. John Piper, back in 1978, spoke in Aspen, Colorado, to a gathering of InterVarsity students and some people off the street. At the end of his talk, one of the students asked a very common question. He said, isn't Christianity just a crutch for people who can't make it on their own? John Piper said, I answered simply, Yes, period. He says, Jesus didn't come to the healthy. Who did Jesus come for? The sick. It is those who are sick. It is those who recognize they don't measure up to the righteousness of God. And we recognize we need help because we can't do it on our own. We need someone who does it for us. So yes, yes, we recognize when we come to Christ that we are needy and we need help. So this morning the question is simply, are you a follower of Jesus? Are you on the outside hearing this? You can have this blessedness, this happiness, by putting your faith and trust in him. And if you know him as Lord and Savior, we need to strive to let the Holy Spirit control our lives that it may produce the fruit that the gospel does produce in our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Help us that we might be faithful in honoring and serving you, Lord. Father, I pray that each and every person here will put their faith and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. For this we pray in his name. Amen.